Well, if you'd like to take your Bibles again, we'll pick it up at chapter 52. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here? declare the Lord. Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers weigh, wail, declares the Lord. Continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generations who considered, they was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and he be satisfied. By his knowledge shall a righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, in a moment we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, let me just mention a couple of things. The first thing to say is that we will be having a short question time as soon as the sermon ends. And so I mention that now so that you can be anticipating it and think of any questions that you might have off the back of the passage and what we've been reflecting upon. The other thing to mention is you have the order of, uh, the sermon outline in your order of service, which if you would like to use, you can do. And finally, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your the arm of the Lord has come and that it's through him that you will bring your salvation. As we reflect on these things this morning, might we be assured to trust in you and not fear men who are like grass. Amen. Well, what I would like to do this morning is to paint a series of pictures in your mind. And then when, once you have those different pictures in your mind, I want to put them all together and hopefully show you how they relate to one another. Each picture itself should be quite vivid. And when they get put together, they should become all the more vibrant. So let's give it a go. The first picture is found in Matthew 16. This is where Jesus asks the disciples, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then just a few verses later, Jesus begins to explain that he will suffer, be killed, and then on the third day rise. 
Now this is something Peter cannot get his head around. Jesus is the Messiah. So he has the full power of God behind him. He can manipulate creation. He can heal the sick. And he can even bring the dead to life. How then can he suffer and die? So because of this, Peter rebukes Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now it's quite easy to criticise Peter, but I'm not sure whether it's our place to be critical. Jesus has been very clear as he strongly commends Peter for recognising from the many signs that Jesus has performed that he is the Messiah. Peter is the forerunner for every Christian that will come after him. He's the first to recognise Jesus as the Christ and all of us who come after him do so in his shadow. He will be the one who preaches the first sermon on Pentecost and through him and the other disciples the salvation will go out to the world. Yet when Peter learns how Jesus will fulfil his duties through suffering and death, Peter cannot compute. He cannot fathom how it is that God's Messiah could die. Peter is expecting the Messiah to bring God's salvation. He isn't expecting opposition, and certainly not opposition that gets the better of the Messiah. This is God's king in all his glory. Suffering and death do not communicate glory. So this is the first picture. It's the picture of a disciple who's diligently followed Jesus from the very beginning. Who's correctly interpreted the signs and identified Jesus as God's chosen king. The Messianic age has arrived. Yet this man will not accept that his Messiah will suffer. The next picture is found in Isaiah 51 and 52. This is the picture of the arm of the Lord. Have a look at 51 verse 5. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Now God's arm is tied up with salvation. It is by his mighty arm that God will achieve this salvation. And it's guaranteed because the only opposition that his salvation might have is from man. A man, well, they die. The passage describes how they're like grass. They're also like a garment eaten by a moth. 
We've already seen in the book of Isaiah, the people feared Babylon and had no hope of ever coming out of exile because of their power. But Isaiah was clear and he taught the people that this was the wrong perspective. The people of his day needed a paradigm shift. The nation of Babylon was made up of men. And as soon as men are born, their bodies begin to decay. But God, well, God does not share this weakness. He is distinct from creation. He brings creation into existence. It depends upon him. He rules over every nation. His arm is his salvation. And he cannot be thwarted. So we read in Isaiah 52 verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God's salvation is here. And it will be seen by the whole earth. So here we have our second picture, a picture here of God's might represented by his bare arm through which he'll bring his salvation. Salvation that no one can oppose. Salvation that is eternal. And those who might believe they could oppose it, well, they're mere men. They live for only a short time, then they die. They pose no threat to God and have no means to bring a halt to his salvation. The next and final picture we find in Isaiah 53 verses 3 and 4 says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In Isaiah 53 verse 3, we have a picture of a man. He is the servant of the Lord. And he's described as being despised. Now, as an English word, despised suggests quite an active response. So to despise someone could well follow up with comments and insults. Whereas the Hebrew word, that does not carry any of these connotations. Rather, it just means someone who's considered worthless and unworthy of our attention. Someone who's quickly dismissed without a second thought. Now the reason this man is considered worthy, uh, unworthy of our attention is because he's a sickly man. This man is weak and he's pathetic. And so anyone who do 
does see him, well, they give him a wide berth. Yet then when we come to verse 4, it is explained that the sickness he carries is not his own. That which caused him to be dismissed belonged to another. The very sickness that meant he was hastily avoided and that caused others to consider him unworthy, well, it wasn't his. The sickness he carried belonged to us. It was ours. And so we have another picture, this time of a man who's dismissed because he's considered pathetic. But really, he's a mirror of all those who dismiss him. That which makes him look pathetic belongs to those who've dismissed him. And they're in no place to evaluate him as unworthy. Under his apparent weakness, there's to be found a strength that eludes the onlooker. Because he has a might that isn't obvious at first glance. But people don't bother to take a second look because he's already been dismissed. And so we have three pictures. The faithful disciple who does not believe the disciple can suffer. Then the mighty arm of the Lord that is able to bring salvation, a salvation that cannot be opposed, but will be eternal. And then lastly, a sickly man who's dismissed as being insignificant. So what ties these three pictures together? We'll have a look at 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 51 and 52, they speak of the arm of the Lord. But then in 53... The arm of the Lord is identified as the servant of the Lord. The arm of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, they are one and the same. This is a connection that we might not expect, but for the fact that we're so familiar with the gospel. But surely we can appreciate this strange juxtaposition. On the one hand, the picture of the arm of the Lord has been portrayed as having a might that cannot be opposed. Backed by the power of the creator, opposed only by mere mortals who are no threat at all. And then a moment later, the arm of the Lord is described as a sickly man that's quickly dismissed by the very men who should have been, he should have dismissed because they're like grass that fade away. And as 53 verse 1 says, 
Who has believed that he has heard from us? This explains Peter's response. It did not make sense that the Messiah would suffer. Yet Peter still recognised more than most. For the rest of Israel, they would reject their Messiah and call for him to be crucified. They would not recognise that the sickly man was sickly because he carried their sins. They would believe that the curse he bore as he hung from a tree was his curse, a curse given to him from God. But it wasn't. And this is where we begin to see the might of God as demonstrated at the cross. The arm of the Lord was punished not for his own sin, but for the sin of his people. His death wasn't a weakness coming out of a plan that went wrong. Rather, his death pays the penalty for man. This is how the arm of the Lord is God's salvation. Far from being insignificant, this sickly man takes the sin of the world upon his shoulders, takes the wrath of God that others deserved, for he was pierced for our transgressions. And this is the power of God, that all who would believe would have salvation. And this is a salvation that's eternal, which means two things at least. It means that this salvation is available today. And it means that it's eternal in as far as all who believe will be given eternal life. The mighty arm of the Lord is the suffering servant who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as you tell your people, as they anticipate their escape from exile, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. We pray, Lord, that we would not be those who remain asleep. We pray, Lord, that we would awake to the salvation that you provided. We pray, Lord, that we would not dismiss this sickly man, but see that he has taken on our sin, that the grief and the sorrows that he carries are those. We thank you that you sent your son to die in our place so that we might have salvation. We pray now that we would continue to put our trust in you, the one who cannot be opposed, whose plans cannot be thwarted, as we anticipate and look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. I mentioned at the start of the sermon that there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about this morning. We normally get maybe two or three, depending on how long it takes me to uh, give a reply. Any questions or comments? Yes, Susie.
Yes, yes. So when we get to Isaiah 53, you'll notice that it's all in the past tense. So, for example, uh, 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected. Verse 4, or verse 5, he was pierced by transgressions. Uh, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. So how are we to think that it is all in the past tense, particularly given the fact that we're looking forward to this occurring in the future. I guess there's a couple of things to um, allow for. So ultimately this is poetic poetry. So it could be as simple as that, that in poetry um, you don't need to worry too much about tenses in the way that you do if you're writing uh, other narration. The other thing that's worth considering as well is that the Bible does have have a tendency or the writers of the Bible at least to have a tendency to put things in the past tense to show that they're as good as fulfilled or they're as good as promised you know as get there there's a guarantee to them so it could be that I'm not sure I must admit the commentator didn't pick up on it particularly but there could be a sense that actually this is as good as happened. It hasn't happened as such, but there is a guarantee that this will take place. So for the minute, that's probably where I'd be. Those two will probably be my thoughts. Yes, Victor. So Good question. So verse 9, just repeat this for recording. In verse 9 it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Uh, is that a reference to the two thieves? Again, I think we need to, I think if we go through the whole of Isaiah 53 and try and think, try and find a one-to-one -one correlation, we're going to come unstuck. Having said that, I think, yeah, your reference to the two thieves, that could well be um, a connection. But I think at the same time, so for example, you know, the bit that we focus in this morning uh, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Um, and I focused in on that sort of idea that he was sickly. Well, you think about Jesus, he wasn't particularly a sickly man. Um, he was ridiculed when he was on the cross. So there isn't always a one-to-one. -one. Again, this is poetry, isn't it? So it's describing... Um, is presenting a picture, it's describing a state, it's describing all that sort of thing. 
So, like I say, yeah, I think you're probably right. A grave with the wicked. Well, you could say he wasn't literally buried with those two men. But, yeah, he did die alongside um, two criminals. So, but that's how the poetic, the poetry works. Time for another? They're coming thick and fast this morning. Yes. Yeah, very good point. So, uh, just to repeat the question of the recording, if you were reading this as a Jewish person, surely you would just think, well, that makes perfect sense. This must be Jesus. Um, yeah, why aren't all Jewish people Christians? It's an interesting, well, it's, it's interesting on all sorts of different levels, and I think that's partly why I introduced Peter into the story at the start. I guess one, well, there's a lot to, to be said, but I guess one thing to say is, for us who live in this very different phase of redemptive history, we have something that even Peter didn't have as he walked alongside Jesus. So we've been given the Holy Spirit, and because of that, that is what convicts us of the truth. So to us as we read this, we're just thinking, well, this just cries out Jesus because we have the Spirit, and because the death and resurrection ascension has happened. One of the things that um, Jesus says to Peter after he's declared him as, a, as the Christ, he says, don't tell anyone. And one of the reasons why he says don't tell anyone is because the crowd will make the same mistake that Peter does. They won't understand and appreciate um, that what it means for him to, the Christ, to be the Christ. And that's demonstrated by the fact that the very second later, Peter's saying, you can't suffer, you can't die, you're the Messiah. So it was only then after the death, resurrection, ascension that it made sense to Peter what he'd seen. And then it was able to, it was in that context that Jesus had died, had risen from the dead, had ascended, that um, he would he would put it all together and know what it means for him to be the Christ, that sort of thing. But then you've got, well, okay, well, now we're in this phase of redemptive history. The spirit has come. Um, and that's what we find both when we engage with Jews and when we engage with Gentiles, that to us this looks so plain and so straightforward that we expect it just to make complete sense to them. But again, those who have the spirit and those who have this truth revealed to them, it does make sense. But for those who rebel against God and that's their default position, it won't make sense. And the Bible talks about how the Jewish, the Jews have rejected the Messiah. And I guess it's an important thing, distinction to make. When the, when the apostles go to the Jews, they say to them, repent because you killed your Messiah. When they go to the Gentiles, they don't say repent because you killed your Messiah, because they haven't killed their Messiah. They say, they say to them, repent from your idolatry and turn to God. So we now live in this phase of redemptive history where we, yeah, where both the Jew and the Gentile have the opportunity to receive the gospel. The Jew needs to repent um, because 
they've rejected the Messiah and the Gentiles repent um, because of our idolatry and that only happens when the Spirit convicts us of the truth. Okay, let's leave it there and we'll sing our next song and then move on to the Lord's Supper. So we're going to stand to sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.